today's episode of the Overdrive Radio Podcast for January 22, 2021 comes two days after the inauguration of a new president as the work of trucking rolls on along the nation's highways and I'll be your host as usual but again this week I'll be passing the mic around to long haul Paul Marhofer for a long run through the history of trucking with former household goods hauling owner operator Finn Murphy also a well-versed student of trucking history. This brief history of trucking in America tracks the rise of the business from the 1920s up through today, and the owner-operator's central role through it all. We'll hear from a past wildcatter about, among other things, the Alice Chalmers Purple People Eater engine in one of his trucks, from Murphy about his post-deregulation career, made possible by the 1980 Motor Carrier Act's removal of barriers to entry that kept many new ventures out of trucking markets, and about the rise of the Teamsters and regulated freight markets from the 1930s on. The history was episode 3 in Overdrive's co-production with PRX's Radiotopia, Over the Road, which I wouldn't be surprised if you missed. This episode aired originally right smack in the center of the surge of uh, COVID-19 cases late last March, the initial surge one that kept the entire nation on edge. Speaking of which, if you missed Overdrive editorial director Max Heine's distillation of four owner-operator stories dealing with long-term after-effects of the disease, the so-called long-haul COVID phenomenon, much remarked upon of late, search uh, COVID long haulers via overdriveonline.com to find it. it. goes without saying, but do what you can to keep safe out there. The truck's cab makes for a heck of an effective quarantine in most cases, but clearly drivers are just as susceptible to getting sick as everybody else, particularly back in their home communities where the spread has been happening as the most as of late all around the country. Stay safe. Okay, I've got a short profile for you to get us started here. Ohio-based Fred Bowerman is uh, not a working hauler, but he brings a passion to supporting drivers in grassroots advocacy efforts. Likewise to the big piece of history, too, that is his 1978 Peterbilt 352 cab over. You'll hear where his passion comes from in this brief chat with him on the National Mall this past October, where he participated in That's a Big Ten Four on D.C. In fact, he's one of the organizers. Hi, I'm Fred Bowerman. Uh, just uh, got involved with Ten Four about uh, three years ago. We uh, created the first Ten Four. This is our third year. Um, just got involved because I wanted to help drivers to you know, get a little more voice in the industry. And um, after the three years of advocating, I think that uh, some of the drivers in the different groups have actually made some difference because we have the uh, FMCSA now considering the driver board and things like that to help give drivers you know, more of that voice in the industry. And As you may know already, members of that panel, which uh, will be chaired by Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association President Todd Spencer, were announced in uh, recent weeks. Find the full list of members via overdriveonline.com, search FMCSA's new advisory panel. You'll recognize a few voices you've heard on this podcast among them, including owner-operators Debbie Desiderato and and, uh, Desiree Wood, and likewise uh, driver John Grovner. In what follows immediately here, Fred Bowerman uh, references the May Day events in D.C. He's referring with that uh, reference to the three-week protest vigil down along Constitution Avenue last year near the White House, where drivers and owner-operators sought attention to brokerage bad actors and a feeling of a need for greater transparency into rates for truckers. We've taken up that subject from a variety of angles, including from the point of view of some of the protest participants and 
well, the voices of the good brokers out there, of which there are many, of course. Here's Bowerman, about what he sees as the likely good to come out of FMCSA's driver advisory panel. And I think that's what, you know, ultimately that's, that's where it's about, giving the guy behind the seat, you know, a little more, you know, say in, in what's going on. That's, that's my motivation. We have to have a way to have everybody feel included. And that's where I think that this driver council really kind of steps up to do some of that, you know. Nothing will ever be perfect, you know, and, but I think it's a big step in the right direction. I think it was directly resulting from all the activism because I think they realized that, you know, as May Day, it grew and people around the nation supported it. We didn't sustain 21 days without you know, the whole trucking industry taking part in helping us to maintain the costs and the, and people coming in to relieve people. And, you know, that, that took a real effort, you know. And and I think that sent them, sent them a message that people, that the truckers are restless and they're going to keep until they feel they're involved, you know, they're going to keep trying to get in there. Bowerman's trips to D.C. and other owner-operator and driver-led advocacy events around the nation see him rolling in a piece of history, as I noted up top, which you can find a few more views on in the post of, uh, on Overdrive that houses this podcast for January 22, 2021. Visit overdriveonline.com/overdrive-radio. Well, I'm a second generation. Uh, my dad was a truck driver. He was killed behind the wheel, and. Uh, I bought the Peterbilt to basically uh, the 352 because that's what he drove and I wanted to save something that I remembered from my childhood uh, you know I guess once it's in your blood it's in your blood you know and uh, I just couldn't bear to go down the road and see that there I didn't see the, the cab overs anymore so I had to save one and I was fortunate to find this one down in Hattiesburg uh, Mississippi a gentleman by the name of Taylor Gilmore who had purchased it I believe from the first owner uh, because uh, he was out of Illinois and and I uh, tracked the, the first owner back to Illinois where it was sold. So I tried to track him down because I wanted to find, you know, pictures that have all the original uh, pinstriping and everything too because I figured the original owners who had that done and I kind of wanted to put the truck back exactly how it was because some of that's been lost over the years. But, you know, it's a, it's a 352 um, 1978 352 with a, a 3406 a model cat and uh, 15 speed 190 wheelbase um, we've done a little work but the truck's pretty much how i bought it uh we put a clutch in it last year and um uh, uh, really it's been a pretty good truck i mean i have some things i still need to do but it's uh, you know just minor everyday kind of you know yeah, this is my big trip every year. Just from I, I'm from Toledo, Ohio, uh, and uh, I come down here to help put on this event once a year. So, other than that, it's pretty much a local truck, and, and unless I go out of town for other trucking events to support some of the other groups. And as uh, Bowerman intimated earlier, his father uh, passed in 1973 in an accident believed to be fatigue-related. That personal history is another of the reasons he got involved with 10-4 on DC and other advocacy-related events to begin with in 2017, ahead of implementation of FMCSA's mandate for electronic logging devices. It just really scared me because I, I, I don't think it's ever good for a driver to have to make a choice between making money and being safe. We have to give them flexibility in their day. I have some uh, clippings and, and we also have, uh, you know, for what the 
the guy behind him had said that it looked like he was maybe getting drowsy because he was, you know, yeah, and he come up on some traffic, stopped traffic. At the last minute, he realized or came become alert or whatever, and and avoided the 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 accident, but jackknifed and that caused him to lose his life because I was about five years old, six years old. I was just starting kindergarten, and, but you know that's the my happiest memories are with him in the truck and when my family was all together. Him working on the truck and, and I guess teaching me as much as I could comprehend, you know. Big thanks to Bowerman for his story. Before we hand it off to Long Haul Paul for a run back even farther in time, here's a quick word from Overdrive Radio's sponsor. If you're a leased owner-operator, you need quality insurance to keep you protected. Call First Guard for the commercial truck insurance you need and the service you deserve. First Guard is the trucker's insurance company. We understand your needs and offer physical damage and non-trucking liability insurance for leased owner-operators. With First Guard, you always get fast and friendly service. Visit firstguard.com. That's the number one, stguard.com. First Guard, we speak trucker. Let's talk. Hi, my name is Ruben Carrion, owner-operator from Kissimmee, Florida. Quick note before we start, there is a little strong language in this one. So far on the show, we've talked a lot about the culture of the trucking industry. It's the freedom of it. You gotta live it, love it, breathe it, bleed it. We've heard about the importance of freedom. 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 And autonomy. I'm my own boss. Your own boss. About the pride in getting a job done right. Do what you got to do to get the job done. On your own terms. This is not insurmountable. Sometimes, in spite of the rules. Turn it miles, turn it burn, man. And often in spite of the personal cost. Scares the guy a little bit, honestly, though. Some truckers even like to say that we are like the last American cowboys. Not dealing with the people. Living by our own code. A loner. Apart from the rest of society. And doing my own thing and my, my own rules. But where did this culture of independence come from? Okay, this is, I, I love this subject. We have to go back to food. So today on the show, we're talking history and also food. With some help from author and trucker, Finn Murphy. Let's just dial it to about 1933. That's where it all starts about food. Finn's gonna help us get to the bottom of this whole mythology of truckers as the last American cowboys. He'll take us on a journey that touches on everything from Humphrey Bogart to the Lord of the Rings, and from Ronald Reagan to Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt's basic problem was, how am I going to boost farm incomes and provide cheap food at the same time? And that's the birthday of the American trucking myth, culture, and everything else that comes from that. This is Over the Road from PRX's Radiotopia and Overdrive magazine. I'm Long Haul Paul. When you're an over-the-road trucker, part of your job is to cavort with your brethren over coffee addressing the international geopolitical situation, maybe the breakdown of the modern family, all while hurling invective at your fellow drivers who don't come from the same part of the country as you do. It's pretty much what we do. So you can think of this episode as just that, 
a good old-fashioned truckers-only counter discussion between Finn, wow, myself, hey Finn, and my colleague here at Over the Road, the bull hauler's daughter herself. I know it's it's <laughs> over the top. Lacey Roberts. <laughs> This is the type of brisk repartee you used to hear at places like the TV room of the New England truck stop in Sturbridge, Mass. Gee, I'm a truck driver. I've never been. A veritable rotating think tank in its day. <laughs> or in Kenley, North Carolina, where some drawling denizen of Big Boy's truck stop would expound at length on how all y'all Yankees ruin NASCAR. So consider yourself warned. Things are about to get pretty heady in here. Okay, I admit it. I discovered Finn's book, The Long Haul, while Googling myself. Long Haul Paul. Let's face it, nobody gets to own that phrase, but still, who was this other long haul guy? Two paragraphs in and I was hooked. Man, could that guy write. And as I read the book, I realized just how much Finn and I have in common. Well, it started when I was about 17, and I worked at a gas station. Like me... He was a gas jockey. And next door to the gas station was Callahan Brothers Moving and Storage. Who looked up to the truckers? I was sort of in awe of these guys because I could see the sweat sort of caked on their T-shirts. But like me, Finn decided to go to college. So that was my summer job as a local mover at Callahan Brothers. Like me, he got three years in. And then the summer of my junior year, I ran into this long-haul driver named Will Joyce, and I took a road trip with him down to Virginia. And like me, he dropped out. I was just bewitched by the whole life, by seeing the country, by the work, and by the money. I decided that I would get my tractor-trailer license and do exactly what my friend Will was doing. But this is where my story and Finn's diverge. You see, Finn took the high road, in a sense, following Willie Joyce into that most artisanal form of trucking, that of the high-end household mover. He's the guy you call when you need to move an $80,000 collection of Chinese artifacts into your new vacation home in Aspen. Very few truckers out there can do what Finn does. You have to be strong, but also smart and able to mix with the well-heeled clientele. Me, I suppose I wound up on a lower road, pulling reefers, loads of lettuce, Pork loins, watermelons, food, that is. My loads took me to the dirty sides of towns, to the old warehouses, to the produce and the meat markets. I was awake when everyone else was asleep with a lucky strike in my hand. <sighs> Seeing what the old Pete could really do in western Kansas and all of it coming back to food out there with the cow trucks, the chicken haulers, the hopper bottoms laden with grain rolling through the nameless fields of the great alone. It all starts about food. That's what Finn was starting to explain at the top. So let's hear him out. In the late 19-teens, the food cost for an American household was a significant portion of their annual income. I've seen numbers all over the place, but 40 to 50%, maybe sometimes even higher. So food costs are rising, and you have this 
nascent trucking industry, and it made it easier for small farmers to get their goods to market. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange. So let's just dial it to about 1933. FDR is elected president, and remember now, so we've got a very depressed farm economy, catastrophically depressed now. Bewildered, they joined the great army of the highway. And so you had way more trucking and truck capacity than the economy needed at that time, 1933, 34, 35. So the trucking companies were all cutting each other's throats, underbidding freight rates. So we've got this three-headed monster. We have high food prices. We have uh, trucking companies going out of business. And then we have this farm catastrophe all happening at the same time. The Roosevelt administration came up with a plan. They regulated the interstate trucking industry. In these critical days. The Motor Carrier Act of 1935. Which is, you know, all of this sounds kind of mundane. And when, when you, you know, if you ever talk to any trucker, you, almost everybody's going to know what the Motor Carrier Act of 1935 is. Even if they, you know, even if they have trouble reading or never finished high school, we know about the Motor Carrier Act of 1935, what it did is it regulated all aspects of interstate trucking. It set the freight rates for every single commodity. It was a federal offense to charge less than that. And then it exempted agricultural products because the only place to square that Gordian knot of higher farm incomes with cheaper food is to lower the transportation costs. So they left farm products out of the Motor Carrier Act. That means starting after 1935, if you hauled steel, say, there was a minimum rate that you had to charge. If you hauled cabbage, you negotiated your own rate directly with the shipper. I have a quick question. Um, can you just sort of paint a picture of what a driver's life was like before and after 1935? Well, there's a great movie. It's called They Drive by Night. Starring none other than Humphrey Bogart. We gotta try to head him off. Watch out he don't cut into us. And it's about two independent truck drivers in the 1930s about what their life was like. I'd be glad to finance it, baby. Who do you think you're kidding? You couldn't even pay for the headlights. Anything else? And what their life was like then as independent truck drivers is Humphrey Bogart, is, he's sleeping under his truck um, on some country road because the truck breaks down. He's paying too much money to get repairs. He's not getting paid the rate he thought he was going to get paid by the commodity guy who he contracted with. And he's working too hard for too few dollars. And then it turned into a good job after 1935, is what you're saying? It turned into a great job. At least it turned into a great job for some truckers. And it all started with those fixed freight rates. So what happened after 1935 is that the trucking companies who had goods that were subject to the Motor Carrier Act... They would go to Washington every year or every two years or whatever it was, and then they would lobby 
for higher freight rates. And then the workers who were driving these trucks realized that these companies were making lots and lots of money. So those truckers started to organize. Our distinguished guest for this evening is Dave Beck, General President of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union, AFL. By 1940, the Teamsters were the nation's largest union, with nearly half a million members. Largest and most powerful union in the United States. By 1950, they could claim more than a million members. Now, Mr. Beck, your union controls everything from uh, the delivery of diapers to the uh, driving of a hearse. So what happened was the Teamsters and the trucking companies together would go to Washington to set the freight rates. I certainly do work very closely with the business people that employ our membership. So labor's getting taken care of. The Teamsters doing pretty good contracts for their people. And I am interested in every industry employing our people. The trucking companies are getting the profit margins they want because the rates are fixed. So from 1935 to about 1980, all of the people regulated under the Motor Carry Act were reasonably happy. We'll very definitely pull out. Well, thank you very much, Dave Beck, for being with us tonight. And then that left the drivers, the truck drivers, hauling agricultural goods who had none of that safety net at all. Why in the world would you haul agricultural products after 1935? Who was doing that and why and how? Um, there's a lot of people that don't want to punch a time clock. There's a lot of people that don't want to be told what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And they're not going to become a Teamster because they would view that as giving up a certain amount of personal American autonomy. And those were the people that became the agricultural freight haulers, called wildcatters, called independents. There's a lot of different names for them. But those people, they would buy their own truck, and then they would find their own loads, a lot of times just driving up to farms, but a lot of time driving up to, you know, wholesalers or things like that, picking up a load of watermelons or, you know, what have you, negotiate a rate with that shipper, deliver the item, and then get paid for that. And then do it again and do it again. But there was a higher level of independence for sure. For many truckers, this wasn't some cultural choice you made between becoming a teamster and becoming an independent or wildcatter. Often it just came down to where you were from. If you grew up in the rural South or Midwest where there wasn't much to ship besides beans, corn, and cows, no one around there was going to give you a union card. But before we go any deeper into the history, I want to pause for a more personal take on all this from one of my heroes. I'm getting too old and forgetful. I'm, I'm 93, you know. Someone who actually lived the life. The old jailhouse and floor for a bed. You know who is guilty, you know it too well. An old wildcatter from back in the day, retired Indiana trucker and unfiltered World War II veteran, the Theldon Thornburg. You know, back in them days, you didn't have turn signals on. Oh, I So see. the only turn signals you had was your arm signal, and you just flashed your lights. 
but it didn't have no front wheel brakes. It didn't have no shock absorbers. Felden was an independent trucker during this exact period we're talking about. I got fired three times from dispatchers at Craig's. He didn't want to punch a time clock. I've always hated the union. I joined the Teamsters, who over time got the reputation of being corrupt. You can't do what you want to do. You got to do what they want you to do. He'd take loads that other truckers wouldn't take. I hauled the first loads up old Jacob's ladders. Down roads where other truckers wouldn't go. A lot of people died there because it was so steep. And he had no interest in being regulated in any fashion. Throw them damn log books away. So I stopped by Selden's house one morning to cook him breakfast. Now, when, when did you, did you start driving when you were in the service? Or and Delton tells us his story. Driving? The day I was 21 years old, I got out of the service, and I started driving for Ellis Trucking. And I drove there for, I don't know, a year or two. Then I started wildcatting. Back in the 1950s and 60s, Delton was one of those independent truckers Finn talked about. But he didn't just haul agricultural products. He was a true wildcatter, meaning he'd haul steel, paper, dry goods, anything he could get in the wagon. And he'd give an under-the-table discount to the freight rates set by the Interstate Commerce Commission. That's what wildcatting was. Back in them days, there was quite a few wildcatters, and we didn't haul anything that was legal. <laughs> Everything was illegal. But you can make good money because uh, ICC had high rates on stuff and you hauled it for cheaper. But if you got caught, you was in trouble. Dalton had a truck he called Big Al. Big Al, it was a power liner with seven or 800 horsepower. The name was a reference to its rare Alice Chalmers motor. They only made 50 of them. The motor itself was painted all in purple. Truckers called it the Purple People Eater. In its day, it passed anything that was on the road, even if you was overloaded. One time I got arrested at a scale just before you got to the Continental Divide. He and another driver got busted up there for being overweight. And me and that guy had breakfast together. I was 5,000 pounds heavier than he was. So he said, I'm going to show you the way up over that continental divide. And I said, you do that. So I hung back behind let him think he was getting a jump on me, you know. When I went past him, I was going about 40 miles an hour faster than he was. And the time I got up over the mountain, I had him out of sight. But here's what I respect the most about Theldon. Yes, he drove fast. Yes, he broke the rules. But he did those things out of a profound sense of personal responsibility. 
I ain't taken nothing to keep me awake except oranges. And that's all I ever did use. I, I'd buy me a whole pack of big navel oranges down there in Florida. And time I'd get the sweet grass, I'd have about two left. In fact, he prided himself on his safety. If you was a wildcat and you didn't have no insurance, but you was careful. He was governed by an interior code. The, the amount of safety that you got is within yourself, not the truck. And I, I drove a damn truck 5,200,000 miles and never did have a chargeable accident. For Theldon, it was all distilled down to taking care of the load doing what you'd said you'd do, looking a man in the eye and giving him your word you'd be there. Some of us like to work. Logbooks, scale masters, speed limits were all just impediments, obstacles that had to be circumvented. I wish I could still work because I enjoy working. I wanted you to hear all that from Theldon so you can understand where the culture around independent trucking comes from. Guys like Theldon, who flat love to work hard and do things their own way, and in part because of the Motor Carrier Act of 1935, that culture comes from rural America, because that's where there was food to be hauled. Things were different around the cities, along the coasts where Teamsters were most dominant, but all that was about to change. We restored competition to the marketplace, and I take some satisfaction that this deregulation legislation... So after the break, we pick up our conversation with Finn Murphy, and we'll hear how the whole regulatory system that Delton grew up in was turned on its head. That each generation of Americans has a rendezvous with a different reality. And in a sense, we all became wildcatters. So Finn told us about the Motor Carrier Act of 1935 and how it basically split trucking into two parallel industries, agricultural and non-agricultural. That all changed in 1980. But before we get to that, let's take a little road trip through time. In this century, America has become a nation on wheels. After World War II, trucking quickly overtook rail as a dominant mode of freight transport. wheels to bring us the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the things we use. But when we depend on wheels, we depend also on highways. In 1956, the Eisenhower administration started work on the interstate system. Congress responded with the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. Providing the staggering sum of With the interstate, a cross-country trip that used to take weeks could be run in mere days. It'll be possible to drive from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean and from Canada to Mexico without a single stoplight or stop sign. And the trucks were changing, too. Seven and a half tons of custom-forged steel. They had power steering, air ride seats, 
essentially the job became a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. It can pull a 40-foot trailer load of 76,000 pounds of cargo 850 miles without refueling. By the time the 1970s were in full swing, there were more than four million heavy trucks working in America. Uh, breaker one nine, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, big fan, come on. They were all over popular culture, too. With truckers often portrayed as cowboys and outlaws. With a truckload of bootleg beer. This is Bandit One, and that is Bandit Two. Part of the same mythology we've been talking to Finn Murphy about. The only time clock they've got to punch, the one in their heads, because out in the road, they're on their own. The reality, though, was that most truckers didn't fit the cowboy description. For most, trucking was simply a decent, middle-class job with solid benefits, with pensions. In, in certain ways, it was the golden age of truck driving and for trucking companies. But the whole industry and culture of trucking took a big turn leading up to the 1980s. The rub, of course, and this is how the deregulation juggernaut got going, is that consumer prices just kept rising because transportation costs just kept rising and there's a, a big groundswell to lower consumer prices. And the best way to do that, according to some people in the government, was getting rid of the supports that we've already talked about. A strange coalition came together to push for deregulation of the trucking industry. It included some independent truckers who were hoping for more freedom in what freight they could legally haul. But it also included some of the regulators themselves, consumer advocates, manufacturers of all shapes and sizes, and of course the retailers who bought stuff from them. Together, they took their concerns to legislators in Washington. To say, essentially, the Roosevelt administration is still running the trucking industry, and we need to bring competition into trucking. And they did. While others talked of free enterprise, it was the Democratic Party that acted and we ended excessive regulation in the airline and trucking industry. And that's when the Motor Carrier Act of 1980 came in and freight rates were gotten rid of completely. Together, we have cut the growth of new federal regulations nearly in half. In the end, the independent truckers who favored deregulation got what they wanted too. So now anybody in America could haul any item for any price that they could negotiate with the person paying to ship them. So let's, let's dial back to 1980. Deregulation has occurred. And can you talk about how the entire trucking industry changed in 1980? Yeah, so overnight we went right back to 1934. Before 1980, while trucking rates were being regulated and updated every couple of years, there was no incentive to thin out management ranks. There was no incentive to save fuel. There was no incentive not to buy new trucks every couple of years. There was no incentive not to do whatever the Teamsters wanted you to do. And that just doesn't go for movers. That goes for everything that was being transported in the United States. And then the day after deregulation, I'm still charging $175 an hour for two men in a truck 
and then the mover next door says, I'm going to charge you $150 an hour. And then the mover next door to him says, I'm going to charge you $130 an hour. And the mover next door says, I'm going to charge you $100 an hour. So the freight rates basically were cut in half overnight. And the big, big freight companies that were stuck with a lot of management and these Teamster contracts were going bankrupt. The American labor movement as a whole is struggling just trying to hold its own. There's no doubt union companies took a beating after 1980. You hit a low point. There's no question about that. That's one reason union membership has been dropping to less than 19% of the workforce last year. But it wasn't all bad. Independent truckers and startup companies could now get official authority to haul stuff like steel and paper. Freight that guys like Felden used to only haul under the table. Mr. Garrison foresaw the opportunity that would come from deregulation in the trucking industry and decided to get back in the business. This change spawned a whole new class of entrepreneurs who could get in the game and compete with the big fleets. They began American Freightways, which has grown today to a billion dollar organization. Remember Will Joyce? Finn's friend, who got him into trucking in the first place. Well, he was one of those entrepreneurs. In 1981, Joyce started his own company, Joyce Van Lines, with just two trucks and quickly grew it into a nationwide operation. People like Will Joyce, who came after 1980, who were not saddled with union employees, those are the guys that won. As NBC's Mike Jensen reports tonight, this is a trend that union leaders are battling. The days of the automatic raise, every time a contract comes up, seem to be over. The government says Plenty of everyday drivers did just fine after deregulation. But the broad picture mirrors the rest of the working world. We all seem to be working more and more for less and less. We took pay cuts, averaging about 10%. This union is about the membership, the forgotten people, good contracts, in 1985, lower than the inflation rate. Here's the hard truth of it all. Trucker's average take-home pay in 1980 was just shy of 40 grand a year. That kind of money would be worth more than $110,000 today. You can find truckers who pull six figures these days, but they're not exactly the rule. And the average take-home pay is nowhere even close. Between 50 or 60,000 for company drivers and up closer to 70,000 for owner-operators. Okay, but I do want to get back to culture here. What happens to the culture of trucking after 1980? Well, that's I love that's a great question because um, the union drivers that I knew on the East Coast back in that in in those 70s and stuff had a different way of conducting themselves and comporting themselves and dressing themselves. I'm a professional. I'm a middle class guy. I'm not one of those guys. Meaning the independent wildcatter down at the truck stop and he's the guy hauling the agricultural goods who's got 
the rural roots. He's either from the Midwest or the South. He doesn't want to work in a factory. He doesn't want to punch a clock for the Teamsters. He wants to kind of run his own business. He's the one who sees himself as a Latter-day American cowboy. And he's the one who's wearing the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots and the big belt buckle and the plaid shirt and talking real loud to the waitress in the coffee counter. That's great. That's fine. But what happened after deregulation was those professional guys, the union guys, the hourly guys, they didn't have anything left because what they used to do to put their chest out was I'm a teamster and I'm middle class. When those two things disappeared, they're just another sharecropper on the road like everybody else, getting paid by the mile. So as the union and professional middle class men began to disappear, the other truck drivers that are working for other companies, they adopt the cowboy myth. Because now they're living in the same penury and misery that the independents were. I, I totally get it. To a certain extent, I agree with it. I have to be something and something that can make me feel good. And so therefore, I'm going to be the last American cowboy. Can I just poke at this a little bit more? Because I think that you've you've explained it very well. Um, but this is the, this myth of the cowboy is something that me and Paul have been talking about a lot, and I still don't get it. Like, <laughs> I just don't understand why the drive to being independent is enough to make you live in poverty like that. You know, in the way that you describe. Okay, well, I think a lot of these drivers, remember now, coming from the rural Midwest and the rural South and the rural West. So these people have already seen what government intervention has done in the farm business, in the railroad business. There's an anti-statist, anti-union bias built in to these folks that goes way before any sort of cultural wars. This goes back to what they consider to be the pioneer guys in the Conestoga wagons, making their own way in the world. This is who I am. So. I want to speak to, to what, your point a little bit, because I am a rural Midwesterner who in so many ways um, does um, embody nearly everything you say. And there is something about the circumvention of the law that becomes a drug. And then all of a sudden, you know, a guy says, well, I just went down to Florida with 107,000 pounds, dodged the scales all the way, made $3,500 clear. And like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And that, that becomes a thing. It becomes a peer dependent thing. And it, it does become its own culture. If, if you were to do a, uh, you know, a roster of, of CB handles from truck drivers, you know, the, the three most popular names are going to be Outlaw, Lone Ranger, and Bandit. And that just <laughs> underscores what Paul was saying is, you know, we're giving the middle finger to the rest of society. We're, we're living in our own society here. As you can probably tell, Finn does kind of look down on the whole cowboy trucker culture. I mean, you don't show up to move the CEO of a Fortune 500 company all dressed up like Yosemite Sam. 
that just won't fly. But the funny thing is, even as he eloquently deconstructs the myth, I know he's never completely divorced from it. So here's what I do. In our interview, I read Finn one of my favorite passages from his book, The Long Haul, where he drives all the way down to Key West only to discover that his load has been given to another carrier. And and you, you get screwed out of a load, and you call your dispatcher, Gary. It turns out that his dispatcher, Gary, has sent him on a 500-mile wild goose chase. Naturally, Finn is furious, and this is what he says. He say, I pity you, Gary. You know what I just figured out about truck drivers? For all their pitiful myths, most of them do this stupid job for one reason. They can look themselves in the eye and honestly say they've held to their own standards without caving into pressure by society or somebody else's expectations. They might fuck up and they do, but they own their fuck ups and keep to those standards regardless of the personal cost. I'm a truck driver too. Fuck you, Gary. Keep your split level in Fort Wayne. Raise your kids to become cogs in the machines. I live by a different standard that I just figured out. All these cowboys I've looked down upon, they're better than you for all their faults. And I, I here we are, we're, we're, what now? 20, 39 years after uh, 1980. And, and yet this seems to be the thing that we all grapple with is living by our own codes, our own standards. And can you speak to that, Finn? I'm, I have to tell you, I just, the chills went down my spine because I mean, it's just, that is, it's sort of a declaration of an anthem, uh, which I hold. And, and you're right. I'm completely ambivalent about the myth. I mean, I can excoriate it on the one hand, but then um, I'm also bound up with it, too. It's like Gollum in the ring. You know, Gollum hated the ring of power, but he loved it, too. And I'm, 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 trucking for me is, is kind of the same way. I like, you know, weirdos. <laughs> I, I like people with opinions. I like people that have done something different with their lives, and I like to hear about it. I like to talk to those people. I like to be around those kinds of people. And you can still find those people in trucking. Because if you can't fit anywhere else, you can fit where you don't have to fit at all. And that's as an independent driver. So, yeah, it is a place for people that can't quite toe the line in, in certain other ways. And I, it, it's going to be a tragedy when it goes. day after talking to Finn, I've got a load of milk to haul. At least he rides along. Now, where is your coffee? It's here. Talk a little bit about the importance of coffee to a truck driver. <laughs> it's like we're, we're always in search for the strongest coffee possible. We, we believe that there's no such thing as coffee that's too strong. There's just people that are too weak. find ourselves in the agricultural mecca of West Central Ohio, hauling by silos, steeples, cattle, and fields. 
Yeah, wow, no kidding, you make this strong. <laughs> Was that too strong? Nope. <laughs> I'm not too weak, Paul. <laughs> well, I wasn't suggesting. There's no shame in saying it's too strong. I'm, that doesn't mean you're there weak. There is definitely shame in saying it's too strong. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> When Finn talks about those people who can't quite toe the line in society, he's talking about guys like me, those shiftless ne'er-do-wells who never quite fit in. It's just out here in this lonesome old farm, picking up a load of milk, dropping off an empty trailer. Trucking gave me a place in the world. It took my family out of grinding poverty. It gave me the best friends that I have on this earth. And like Finn said at the end there, it feels like it's all starting to disappear. Electronic logs, digital freight apps, the kind of stuff we've been talking about the last couple episodes, not to mention the onboard cameras and autonomous trucks. These things are changing the culture of trucking for better or for worse. So as we drive down the road, I tell Lacey this story about one of those old friends of mine and the culture that we shared. Kevin was my old boss. He overheard me playing my guitar in the terminal. And he asked me what song that was. I said, it's one I wrote. I said, well, what are you doing with that messed up guitar? Because I had accidentally sat on this guitar that my daughter gave me. I threw it in the sleeper and I was tired one night. I sat on it and I broke it. No. It was held together by duct tape. Oh, and, no, and that sucks. Bailing wire. He goes, what are you doing with that messed up guitar? That's what I got, man. Two weeks later, Kevin gave me this beautiful black Epiphone guitar. And all he asked was that I play a few songs for the boys in the warehouse. And, uh, but Kevin was an old produce hauler. And he and I understood each other. Uh, the bond of thieves and bandits. Uh, when we did these things. Nineteen eighty-nine. Diesel was just a dollar. So we came from the hills and hollows Just to work that broken line See you take your truck With a big block mechanical commons Super up till it was hum Just like the old boys running shine We burned them second morning Detroit's out of Salinas upon the thieves and bandits we born between us it was a golden age of the good old boy tell you another thing about my buddy Kevin he's from Kentucky and he has strong opinions about which truck stop has the best nanner pudding on I-75 no matter how much you ate, no matter how full you was, you had to get nanner nanner pudding to go. So in our next episode, 
We're going to settle that age-old question once and for all. And believe it or not, we have drove from Dayton, Ohio to the 49er for Nanner Pudding. <laughs> That's good Nanner Pudding. You can beat it. We're taking a tour of my favorite Kentucky truck stops, where we'll also meet my favorite singing waitress. Keep yourself busy and make that 12 hours go by real quick. Catch you next time, over the road. It just takes one too many straight shots to Miami. One too few nights in my own bed. They had to carry me back home to India. Seven broken bones left these scars upon my head. Now it's all 19. I'm a little hobbled when I walk in. Little cut back on my top end. I'm just trying to stay out of the way, but my record's clean. And they tell me that I'm complying. It's more like too old to be defying. Though I still dream about those days. Well, they used to. Be quiet understanding When all else failed you run that freight on town Now I'm busted on the cruel backside of Banning With some triple digit large car in my mind Over the Road Pit Crew includes producer and sound designer Ian Koss and contributing producer Lacey Roberts at Transmitter Media. Our editor from Overdrive Magazine is Todd Dills. Our digital producer is Aaron Wade. Our project manager is Audrey Martovich. And our executive producer for Radiotopia, Julie Shapiro. I'm Long Haul Paul. All the music on the show is by Ian Koss and myself, featuring performances by Travis the Snake Man Womack, Terry Two Socks Richardson, Tishamingo Jim Whitehead, Jan Grant Gullett, the late great Roger Clark, and Mr. Andrew Marshall. Special thanks this week to my fellow riding trucker, Finn Murphy. The full title of his book is The Long Haul, A Trucker's Tales of Life on the Road. I've read it three times listen to it about five times. The voices you heard at the top of the show belong to Devery Jones, Mike Landis, Kenyette Godhigh Bell, Mississippi Tim, Jared Sidlow, Jason Earlywine, and a trucker in Dallas who introduced himself only as Rattlesnake. For further reading on the subject of trucking history, check out Shane Hamilton's Trucking Country, the Road to America's Walmart Economy. Find Todd's Distillation of Owner-Operator History, written on the occasion of Overdrive's 50th anniversary in 2011 via overdriveonline.com slash breaking free. Over the Road is made possible by support from folks I have worked for for a really long time, Moeller Trucking, now celebrating over 30 years of safe and reliable transportation for the food industry. For more information, check out molartrucking.com. See some of my videos on YouTube by looking for Long Haul Paul Music. 
Thanks for listening, hanging in to the end of the run. We'll be back next week with more stories from over the road. Thanks for hanging in, owner-operators. And a big thanks to our sponsor, First Guard. That quest for the best banana pudding on I-75 that Paul mentioned will take it up in a couple of weeks here, too. So stay tuned. Meantime, find a whole lot more in the way of exceptional podcast work in PRX's Radiotopia network via radiotopia.fm. Overdrive Radio is a production of Overdrive Magazine. You can sign up to receive Overdrive's daily newsletter featuring trucking news, views, and analysis geared toward current and prospective owner-operators and small fleet owners via overdriveonline.com. The podcast is edited and produced by myself, Todd Dills, with no small amount of support from Overdrive Extra contributor Paul Marhofer, who we heard today, Overdrive Editorial Director Max Heine, Social Media Coordinator Holly Young, News Editor Matt Cole, and Executive Editor James Gillette. Until next time, keep it pro out there.